And so that was the thing back then, you know, like when I was 15 years old, I flew to South Carolina to spend a week in a shop with a knife maker out there I'd never met. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, uh, Josh Smith from Montana Knife Company. You're a master bladesmith. I am. What's that like? I don't know. I've been I've been one for a while, so I guess it's uh, it's uh, I guess it's a good thing to be. It's better than being a shitty bladesmith. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> is that is that it's not, it's not like uh, apprentice and and journeyman, right? Right. It's the, I don't think shitty is one of the titles you can have. I mean, you yeah. can you can use whatever title you want, but I don't think that yeah. would be a good idea. No, I I uh, yeah, I went through all that. Uh, I was an apprentice and a and mm. a journeyman and and did all that. Um, but as a lineman, right? Not as a well at both actually. Okay. Um. So so yeah, actually, with kind of to step back to the knife making part, I I started making knives when I was eleven, and the guy I was learning from Rick Dunkerley. He had the foresight to to have me join the American Bladesmith Society mm-hmm. back then because he could see I was pretty serious about it, and he was like, "Hey, if you go through all these testing phases and you do all this stuff, like you could be you know the youngest to ever do it down the road." And so I, I joined that when I was 12. And then when I was 15, I tested, you know, so I was an apprentice up until 15. And mm-hmm. then when I was 15 years old, I tested for the journeyman Smith rating and mm-hmm. became the youngest journeyman in the world. I didn't know that was a thing. I was just fucking with you because you're, yeah. you're a lineman. I assume there's a union up there for that. There is. Yeah. So, uh, this, the, what's the guy's name? Rick something? Rick Dunkerley. Dunkerley. Yep. And he was your, I think you mentioned yesterday, he's your baseball coach. Yeah. Little league baseball coach. And you were, how, how old are you at the time? I was 11. Oh, shit. Yeah. So you got into this really early. I did, yeah. No, he, my parents. there's a lot of people uh, that over the last five years have gotten into knife making. Yep. Yeah, because you know of Forged I mean? and Fire and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I I, uh, I was playing baseball, and he was coaching, and he was actually an outfitter in the Bob Marshall Wilderness as well. Okay. And so he would bring his hunting knives to practice and show the parents. Mm-hmm. And, of course, being an 11-year-old boy in Montana, I was, you know, just enthralled by it's on it. brand yeah yeah and so I, I think i must have been a pretty responsible kid because he invited me up to a shop and he's kind of a no bullshit guy uh but my parents bought me one of his knives for christmas that year and then he invited me up to make a knife and i made one or two up there and then i think it was his way of telling me to beat it kid but he basically said if you want to be a knife maker you have to have your own shop right so i had a lawn mowing business and i also worked in my parents excavation company and so I bought a belt grinder with my lawn mowing money and I put it in my dad's shop. And then it wasn't too long, like a year, I was making just a mess in my dad's shop. And he was like, What okay. was it like more of a wood shop? It was more of like, he, he had a construction company okay. or it still does. So it was more for like mechanic and on equipment. And he's pretty clean and tidy. It wasn't like a grind steel shop and make a freaking mess. Yeah. His yeah, tools yeah. were clean and everything. And so he enclosed a lean to on our place. Uh, out kind of in a shed and closed it uninsulated and it was funny because he actually built my benches in there to the height he thought I would be someday so there's actually a picture of me in Blade Magazine when I'm 12 standing on a milk crate grinding knives for like three years I had to stand on a milk crate but I worked on knives before and after school I was kind of knife nerd nerd boy and what kind of knives were you making then uh like hunting knives Yep. And I, every so something with a sharp edge or something with a serrated edge. 
pretty much just a, a piece, sharp, like a just a sharp edge, and yeah, fixed blade knife, mm. real simple. Yeah. And I would take those knives up to his shop and and show him, and he would critique them. And basically, I mean, I remember over the years being frustrated because I never got like, "Hey, great job, kid. That's a really good job." Yeah, yeah. It was always like, "What's well, all right, but this is wrong, and this is wrong." And uh, that went on for years. And I, but I started going to knife shows when I was fourteen, and just seeking out all the information I could asking uh, master Smith for information. Mm. For this is pre-internet. So you can't just go on YouTube. A hundred percent. Yeah. There was no internet. So uh, well, it existed, but I don't think there were a whole lot of YouTube didn't exist until what? 2007. Is that right? I think there was definitely no Google. Uh, there was no information on the internet. And, and so that was the thing back then, you know, like when I was 15 years old, I flew to South Carolina to spend a week in a shop with a knife mm. maker out there. I'd never met. He was an old legend. And I just wanted to learn from him and uh, writing letters back and forth and met him at a show uh, later on. But uh, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I was I was serious about it. So I, I tested for the journeyman Smith rating and passed. And and then you have to be a journeyman for at least two years before you're allowed to test for master. Mm-hmm. And, and and what do you is it like? For some stuff, there's requirements for continuing education, or you have to put a certain amount, like for a, a certified emergency manager, you have to have a certain amount of on-the-job hours, not just a period of time where you're technically a journeyman, right? Right. So did you have to make a certain number of knives or spend a certain amount of time in the shop, or how does that work? No, that's a good question. So the way the, none of that's tracked and measured. Uh, you, you have to be an apprentice for a certain number of years, so you have to be an apprentice three years. Then you're allowed to test for journeyman. And the, and the, what that test, it's a two-part test. Uh, the first part is a performance test mm. of the blade. So you have to make a blade that has to chop a one-inch rope in half and one I've chop. I've seen these tests before on the internet. Yep. Like people are just walking around at different stations, chopping, cutting, so on. Yeah, and that's that's kind of that was kind of born from this mm. test. Uh, so you have to chop a, a rope in half and one chop. And th- what that shows is this, you can basically, you can make a sharp knife. Mm. But then the next test, you have to chop two two-by-fours in half, mm-hmm. as many chops as you want. Uh, and when you get done, that blade still has to shave hair. And it still and it can't have any defor- deformations on the edge, no chips, no cracks, all that. And then after that, you have to take that same blade and bend it 90 degrees in a vise without breaking it. And, and so what that shows is that you have knowledge and control of your heat treatment of your steel. If the blade's too hard, it's going to chip, it's going to crack, or it'll break in the bend test. And if it's too soft, it's going to bend and deform when you're going through the hard two by four. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it won't hold an edge. It won't still shave after, after that much cutting. So you have to find this perfect middle ground. Um, and later on in life, like when it, with Montana Knife Company, that's really what our knives are kind of born mm-hmm. from is, is trying to find that perfect middle ground for people. But anyway, once you pass that test, which I did that out in Eugene, Oregon, you have to do it in a master Smith shop under, under his eye. Uh, I then went to the Atlanta blade show where you present five knives to mm-hmm. a panel of master Smith judges and they judge your fit and finish of your blades. Uh, you it's know, five of the same thing, or you're entering different knives. Different knives, okay. five different knives, and, and you're you have to enter five knives. Yeah, that's like right. Skews, you got to bring in. You have to have at least five. Yep. And okay. so, what you want to do is you want to come in there and show some variation in your work that you right. can do multiple things. Uh, you know, you can do different kind of handle constructions and just show that you have a working knowledge of being a knife maker. And the journeyman level, I would equate that to being like you are showing that you're a professional, yeah. but you're not. You're not 
you're not a master yet. Yeah. You know I mean, you can work without supervision, but correct. Like you're not, you're not a premium person yet. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But you're, but you are definitely in most people's eye around the country. You're, you're a pro, you know, you're a good, you're a mm-hmm. solid knife maker. So I did that when I was 15 years old. Um, and then I was a journeyman actually four years. I was in high school and I was, then I kind of duck hunted my way out of college and drank too much. Um, and so I, I actually did my uh, master smith test after right after my freshman year of mm. college. And uh, the master smith test is the same test, but you have to do it with a 300-layer Damascus blade, uh, the performance parts. Mm. So you have to forge, forge that blade. And then uh, your five knives have to include one quillion dagger, which is a double-edged dagger. Uh, the the handle has to be carved, fluted, wire-wrapped, like a bunch of kind of fancy shit. But what it shows is, you know, a dagger is actually very difficult to grind because it's symmetrical. Uh, so you can grind and do everything right on one side of that blade. You flip it over, you have to match it perfectly. And it's mm. really easy to see imperfections in that. And uh, that's a knife that a lot of people struggle with. So... Uh, it shows also you can carve wood, you can you can do like wire inlay and stuff like that. So I did all that when I was 19 and, and passed that. And at that point, there I was like number like 80 in the world um, to ever pass that. And now there's like 140. Yeah, three so. 300 layers. Mm-hmm. So how many folds is that? So that kind of depends on how you do your initial layup of your bar. So mm. I, the way I equate this for people to visualize is like if you were to take red and yellow Play-Doh, say strips of it, mm. and you alternate st- a stack of that, and let's say you stack up 11 layers. So mm. you have six red layers and five yellow mm-hmm. layers. When you roll that out or you press that down, and now imagine this is steel. You have two different alloys of mm. steel, high carbon steel and like a higher nickel content steel. You roll and, and press that out, hammer that out into a long bar, say 30 inches long, and you cut that into six pieces and restack it. Well, that 11 layers now becomes 66 layers, mm-hmm. right? And so you roll that out, you chop that up into, say, five pieces and restack it. Now you've got, a, what, 330 layers mm-hmm. or something. Um, so it's got to be a minimum of 300. 300, I right. See. So well, if what, you, is there is there a purpose... For Damascus steel specifically, and I mean it's been around for a while. Yeah, obviously people have been using this methodology for a long time. Is it is it ha- having two different types of alloys matter that much? No, it it, it there's a lot of mythology around mm-hmm. it. Uh, you know, I mean, it looks cool. Think about the samurai swords, yeah. and they think about like there's actually <clears throat> old Damascus shotgun barrels and stuff from oh, the yeah, 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really cool. There, stuff. There's there's some old uh, cult peacemakers made with Damascus steel too. Yeah. If you, I mean, good luck finding one because they're expensive but exactly yeah, they exist they're super cool but it was believed like in the samurai days it was believed that the more you folded a piece of steel the stronger it got like the more you folded mm-hmm. it the more layers so you have these people that have like five thousand layer damascus blades and stuff and you know if you think about those times back then they didn't have metallurgists and all that stuff and and you know some of those some of those different places, whether it was the Persians or whether it was in Japan or wherever, it depended on what kind of alloys did they have at their disposal, mm-hmm. and then how were they heat treating them? Some people were, you know, plunging those into you know into prisoners to to quench their blades at two thousand degrees, right. and then other people were using mm-hmm. water and you know goat blood and uh, there are all these different mytholo- you know mythological things. What we understand today is 
it's all about the alloys that you begin with mm. and then the temperatures you heat the steel to and and how you how you bring that temperature down quickly yeah. to harden i mean it's blade. just like baking to be honest like if it or or uh, making candy so the difference between like a hard uh caramel and a fucking soft caramel is the temperature to which you elevate the sugar that's okay. it yeah, you go to two seventy five, or you go higher for it to be harder, and then you cool it more rapidly if you want it to be hard as well. So it's the well, same general principle. Then, then it's it's basically identical because for a for a carbon steel blade, if you take it to fifteen hundred degrees, mm. and then you cool it at a fast rate, like in in oil uh, or water, which actually water will crack it; it's too fast, mm. which is why we use oil. Um, if you use the right speed oil and you cool it below nine hundred degrees in under two seconds. Mm that blade becomes super, super hard. Hmm. But if you only heat that blade to 1400, which is just a hundred degrees yeah. different and you do the same process, that thing won't get hard for shit. Hmm. And, and so what, what, how do you make it brittle? Cause that's a, that's a concern. So when well. you, when you come out of the oil at that point, <coughs> that blade actually is brittle at that point. It's okay. a really high rock well. And that's why people use the wrong terminology. They're like, well, how do you temper your blades? Well, actually tempering is a part of the heat treatment process. Mm -hmm. So when your blade comes out of that oil, it is rock hard. It's brittle. It's like a piece of glass. When you put it in an oven at like 400 degrees mm -hmm. for two hours, yeah. it draws the hardness down. That's called tempering. Okay. So it's like you tell somebody, Hey, temper your attitude. Cool. You know, soften your edge mm -hmm. a little bit. That's what tempering is. And when you bring, it's an inverse scale. So when you bring the hardness down, your toughness goes up. Okay. And so that bend that bend test that yeah, I was yeah, telling yeah, you about, yeah. you could take that blade, bend it in a vise and snap it in 20 degrees. You put it in the oven at 400 degrees for two hours. You take it out, you bend that blade, and it maybe goes to 80 degrees and breaks. You mm. put it in the oven for one more hour, you take that blade and you bend it right to 90 degrees. Now, if you leave that blade in the oven for eight hours... You go to chop that two by four and the edge deforms. Sure. Because you've softened it too much. So you're you're looking for the middle ground, I guess. Yep. Um, now a chef's knife, mm. you actually want to leave it on the higher side because you know, you're not asking that chef's knife to chop boards and hit bone and an elk and right. do all these things right and pry. So a harder edge is gonna hold an edge a little bit longer. It's mm. gonna be a little more wear resistant. It's gonna take a nice fine keen edge really well and hold it. Mm. Uh, but there again, a harder blade is going to be a little harder to sharpen. The harder the steel, sure. the harder it is to sharpen. So I see I see marketing with some companies, and they're like, well, we, our blade 65 Rockwell. Then they make the blade super thick so people mm. can't break it because it's brittle. And then the customer can't sharpen the damn thing yeah. because it's a freaking diamond. Yeah, I mean, you need, you need like a... a diamond grinder, basically, to be able to even get into that right. thing, right? Especially right. if it's like, if it's a quarter-inch eighth inch quarter inch thick down at the blade side and, and then even that? if it is sharp it's not going to actually cut well for you it's um you know there's a no one talks about edge geometry and it's actually one of the most critical things to a knife because as, as material say hide or hair or meat passes by the edge of the blade it meets resistance behind the edge mm. in that wedge so if you imagine like a splitting mall for mm. wood uh, you know, material doesn't pass by that easy. That's actually the point of a splitting mulch right. to drive that material <laughs> yeah. apart. Yeah. Um, where an axe, a really <laughs> fine axe, uh, allows to pass through that material really finely. Mm. Um, so that's how it is with the blade. So that's why, you know, choosing your blade, 
you know, if you're going to Afghanistan, you want to pry freaking doors off of houses and hinges. Like, yes, you need a nice thick blade that's probably not going to be as fun to cut with mm. if you're wanting to do fine cutting tasks back at the base. Um, but there again, you don't want to take a real fine pointed dagger or or a real fine edge that's thin that's really great for cutting and then yeah, go yeah. pry with it. So well, there's a it's there's no one knife fits all situations obviously right. and why why would there be i mean right i don't know i get we're, we're like in this um we're in this era in america of the omnibus spending bill or you know the it's it's the microwave culture i need a one stop i need all, one thing that does everything for me it's like mm-hmm. well why would that be the case it doesn't work anywhere else is there life. one gun I mean, no. one gun that you no. could use for everything. I mean, I'm not going to pull out my uh, Glock 43X and try to breach a door with it. Right. right? That's stupid. So, right. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's dumb. different tools for the job. I mean, I, I had some DevGrew guys in the shop the other day, and we were talking about, like, asking those guys, like, what would be the perfect knife for you guys to use? Mm-hmm. And, and they're like, you know, it's so dependent on the situation. Right. Is it an over-the-beach thing? Is it a freaking door-to-door? Is it just cutting paracord? Like, uh, is it self-defense? Um you know, there's just so many different things. So, uh, even with hunting knives, it's, I, I do think the knife that I launched the company with was intended to be as well-rounded as possible. If you, if you were going to just carry mm. one. Um, but if somebody tells me like, Hey, I'm going on an elk hunt or a moose hunt, what's a perfect knife for that? Well, it's going to be different than the knife. I'm also going to tell you to take trout fishing, you know? Yeah. So what's then the, you know, a, a company, I guess, is all about its uh, mission statement at first and then how you separate yourself from everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just another widget manufacturer. So what's wh- what do you think is what do you think is wrong with most knife companies? Not that there's only one answer to that question, but what, what do you think is the issue with these folks? Yeah, and, and you know, there's some there's some good companies out there. Um for sure. And, 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 you know, to be clear, like in the custom knife world, I'm, I'm super close with custom knife makers. Mm. I think, I think people always apologize to me. They're like, Oh, sorry, I've got a knife from so-and-so or whatever. One from Dan Winkler or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. Dan's a freaking great Win- guy. Winkler. He's the one that makes those tomahawks, yeah. right? Oh my God. They're fucking sweet. Yeah. The ones that Jack Carr has all the time. Yep. Yeah. Those things are I fucking was sweet. doing shows with Dan and Karen when I was in mm. high school. They, they couldn't be better people. Yeah. So it's actually a tight community. And I don't give a shit. I hope you have a Dan Winkler knife. I just mm. want you to also have one. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's uh, there again. I equate it to guns. Like, do you just buy one gun, one one brand of gun? Right. You know? Now, in the hunting space, with with these knife companies, and with a lot of things that I've been, you know, and, and I'll step back a little bit. After I became a custom full time custom knife maker in my early twenties, for years, I was a hunter. And I was going into these stores and I was seeing what was available that the mass production companies Mm. were making available to hunters. And I could tell nobody designing and making those knives was an actual hunter. Right. It was like, hey, we make pocket knives, but we also, you know, there's a hunting crowd out there. There's some money to be gotten. We should make a hunting knife. And they just crank something out that's thick and heavy, poorly designed. And uh, it was bothering me what what was available, the quality level. Uh. The other thing that bothered me was how much stuff was being made overseas. And, you know, in my mind, we passed down knives 
just like we do guns, mm. especially as men. We, yeah. We pass down knives and guns. You could probably add. I mean, not a maybe not a pocket knife, but definitely your hunting knives. Man, I, I've sharpened. Like I've got I've got some old pocket knives. Old pocket knives. People bring yeah. me in there like my grandfather carried this. Will you sharpen? I just want to put it up in my safe. Mm. This episode is brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable. Sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And, you know, they wanted to extend their best possible offer to drink it bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So this is the email they sent us. We want drink it bros to get the best offer. So I updated the code for 50% site-wide. That's 50%. Sitewide, use the code Drinking Bros, Drinking Bros with no G, for fifty percent off site wide. Everything that you buy on this site is going to be fifty percent off. Again, they get the best pillows, sheets, mattresses. They get the mattress protector. Uh, if you're if you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress, they have pretty much everything you need. They've got weighted blankets now. They've got the adjustable base, which we really like. I've got one in my home. So go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Use the code drink it bros for 50% off site wide. And don't forget about their page go plan. If you're with approved credit, you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month. It's nothing. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros today and use the code drink it bros for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Dot com the best coffee in the world as a matter of fact they won both the gold and bronze medal at the golden bean awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category so the best coffee on earth literally was circus bear by black rifle one of their ecs so i recommend that you go sign up for the black rifle coffee club use the code citizen you're going to get those points off and uh you know you get all the benefits for being in the coffee club you get the free shipping you get access to all the partner deals uh, uh you get access to the exclusive coffee club you get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does you know it's a very large club that they have over there and the coffees are premium every single one of them is good uh you, you're going to get experience for you you can do just the plain coffee club and if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silencer smooth or whatever it is you drink you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ecs the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like you know what i mean so then you can order those premium coffees from black rifle as well so and we all know they got the best branding the best merch and their buddies you know we're all friends here uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to BlackRifleCoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something. Do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. I, nobody really throws knives away. They might just put them away in a drawer. Mm -hmm. I know most people have drawers of knives or in their safe. They have a bunch of old knives. Um, but it bothered me that I was starting to see the throwaway culture move into the things that we passed down. You know, because quite honestly, from multi multi generations ago, most of us don't have much from our from our forefathers mm -hmm. before us. But some of us have some of their knives or their guns and yeah. their, their prized possessions. You know, uh, and what I was seeing was the throwaway blade, the replaceable blade, coming into popularity because people were too damn lazy to learn how to sharpen a knife, or the knife company wasn't providing them a blade that that was actually easy to sharpen. Mm. Um, and so 
I, I, when I decided to launch Montana Knife Company, everybody was telling me, you got to do this overseas. You know, you have, you, you can't compete. And I, I call bullshit. And, uh, we just started making a, you know, I, I made 200 knives in our first run. Yeah. And we sold those and then we made 200 more, but we did it all here in the U S. Uh, I paid attention to edge geometry, mm-hmm. thickness, super lightweight. And we just started mm-hmm. building and, uh, it was really targeted towards the hunter because the other thing is, is a lot of these companies say they make hunting knives, but you'll go on their Instagram page. They'll talk about hunting season. Mm. They'll even show some hiking pictures. Yeah. They're not showing a dead elk on there yeah. or a dead yeah. bear. Yeah. Uh, you know, they get hate. And quite honestly, I understand why if if 90% of their income comes from pocket knives from REI customers, yep. they're making a business decision. Sure. Uh, where we're we're saying, hey, we're a hunting knife company. And the mm. other thing I see, I saw a guy do this on a video the other day. His buddy was shooting a video breaking down an elk, and his friend right behind him was changing out a replaceable blade and just tossed that blade off in the woods. It's like you're throwing a freaking razor blade off into the woods for other people, animals, whatever. Like, take your pack your shit out. Yeah, if you pack it in, pack it out. Yeah, you know, especially freaking. That's razor like blades. Boy Scout rule number one. Yeah, leave things better than you found them. You don't throw shit out in the woods. Yeah. like that. I mean, that's. Of of as we think of conservation as conservation as, as hunters as like herd management, right? But it isn't just that; it's taking care of the land. And and the West Texas phraseology they like to use is, "If you take care of the land, it'll take care of you." Mm-hmm. That's what people say here, um, and it's absolutely right. And it I, I that he he can tell you I fucking get mad about litter. Yeah. Like I see litter on the ground walking around when we're driving and shit. I'm just like, you fucking idiot. It pisses like, me off. How, how, who, what the fuck are you thinking you're doing here? I don't, right. under, I, I don't understand the mindset of people who are just like casually throwing garbage on the ground. Yeah. That's weird. It's very bizarre to me. Maybe we're just in a different time, I guess. I don't know. No, I, I find it bizarre. And, and we live in a gorgeous state of Montana mm-hmm. and, and you'll see hunters and I've, I've done it. Guys I've hunted with be walking along. Uh, I did, I just did it in New Mexico. I was walking along and there was a helium balloon that had come down. Mm. It was just laying there. Probably balloon. a Chinese spy balloon, right? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I picked it up and just stuffed it in my pack, you know, and threw it away when I got yeah. back to camp yeah. and I was hunting on someone else's property. This was private land. It wasn't mm-hmm. public. Uh, the least you can do if you're out on someone's land, and that public land, by the way, is your land. Mm-hmm. It's your taxpayer money. Yep, y- you should take care of it. Yeah, you know. So you would think. Uh, how much do you do? You have a sense of how much cheaper your products would be if they were made somewhere else. Like, uh, what's the price difference really? Um, you know, that's a good question because I never explored what it would mm. cost to go overseas because I, I, I get the emails every week from over in China, oh, yeah. you know, manufacturer over here, blah, blah, blah. I never actually even priced it out cause it was never an option. Um, I'm sure they would be cheaper. Uh, you know, the other, the other thing that I feel like we provide with that price point is, you know, like one of our hunting knives is between 225 bucks and 350. 300. Which is pretty reasonable, it's frankly. Pr- it's pretty for a hunting knife that you're going to have for ten years that right. you can send in and get sharpened and shit. Like what? That's that's and, not that much money, man. And that's the other thing is, is I, I tell people like you're going to go down and buy a fifty nine sixty dollar nice knife at at Shields every damn year. Uh, the company isn't going to back it up. Uh, like with us, like you just alluded to, we have our generations program. If you mail that knife into us, 
the day we get it, we sharpen it and we ship it back no later than the next day. Uh, I want, I, I had a, actually had a friend of mine say, dude, you, you offer that for free. You're going to like go broke sharpening people's knives. And I'm like, if I, if I'm sharpening that many of our knives, we've sold a shitload mm. of knives. Yeah. No shit. Like <laughs> we're pricing that into our structure. Yeah. Well, you got a guy though that yeah, the kn- knives come in in the morning and he, his job is to get them out by that day. Yep. Right. Same day. And then you overnight <clears> them back. Tristan's job every morning is to get all the generations knives, go through them, uh, do any repair maintenance mm-hmm. it needs, rewrap the paracord. That's the thing with like paracord knives. People are like, well, what if it gets dirty and shitty? Like, send it to us once a year. We'll rewrap it for free, and we'll sharpen it and send it back mm. to you. We'll replace screws if they're rusted, or we'll do whatever, you know. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but in my mind, now that's something that you can you can send in and get resharpened maybe after each season once a year for the next 20 years, mm. you know. Uh, and, and that's the thing about having an American-made company is I, I believe you, you should stand behind your products. Mm-hmm. We've had guys, you know, break our knives because I, I make our knives not to be unbreakable. Like if you abuse it in the wrong way, you're going to break a tip off of mm. it. Um, I generally tell people like, hey, it's not a pry bar, mm. but here's a new knife. We send it to them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's about learning the tool uh, for the job, you know, but uh, it, it's it's something that we're that we're proud of to stand behind. And quite honestly, it sells it, that generations program instead of looking like it costs us money it makes us money because people are like they tell their friends like holy mm-hmm. shit I, I got that thing back in three days yeah and their buddies buy a knife yeah i mean and they 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 buy another one probably yeah right like, oh i need another knife for this other job that i need to do whatever it happens to be so i'm going to buy from this company that actually took care of me uh it, it's so first form who's one of our sponsors and andy Purcell is a, a good friend of mine They've done that since the outset of their company. Yep. It is it is all customer service driven, right? Uh, you, you may like or dislike a particular product, but you can't argue with how they take care of people, right? So so Andy actually uh, was a real driving force for me. Um, so back in 2010, when the economy was dog shit from the housing mm-hmm. crisis, I had been making custom knives for a long time, and I, and I was making five to $10,000 custom knives. Mm-hmm. And... When the economy went to hell, a lot of my backlog of my orders went down like real quick because that's the first thing people cut sure, out yeah, budget yeah. naturally. Yeah. And I had four young kids, and in you when you turn the news on back then, you turn that the media on, the world was ending. Right, we're headed to a depression, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And so I actually uh, kind of like you alluded to earlier, I went and took a job, I got an apprenticeship uh, to become a journeyman lineman, mm. and I kind of essentially at that point let the news chase me out of my passions and what I was doing and into something else that was safer, you know, full-time job, union, insurance, benefits, all the nine yards, right? Uh, when I started, when, when I had the idea starting MKC in 2020, it was COVID. And we came home from Bert Soren's uh, place out at Sornex mm-hmm. in February. We went to a Winter Strong. I came home super motivated to start this company. I'd been around amazing people and I'm like, we're fucking doing this. And COVID hits, like literally when we were flying home was when shit was popping off. And I started listening to Andy's podcast uh, during that time. And over the next couple months, I was like, this is absolute bullshit what's happening with all this shutdown stuff they're talking about. And when I was listening to Andy's podcast, he was screaming back then in the beginning of that Mm -hmm. pandemic 
there are going to be winners and losers at the end of this. Mm -hmm. And if you sit back, if you hold back on your business and you you play it safe, um, there's going to be other people that ignore this shit Mm -hmm. and hammer down. And that was the decision my wife and my business partner and I made. We flat out ignored COVID all the way through 2020. Well, I mean, it's just like the stock market, right? You buy low, sell high. Yep. It's the same principle. And in, in, in 2021, uh, in the, in the dead heat of COVID, our goal for that year was to make, was to do 150,000 in sales. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that year, Brandon and I, we had done 1.9 million. And when we came out of COVID, we were winners out of that Mm -hmm. thing. And, and Andy's podcast was a big part of me sitting there listening Mm -hmm. and going, this dude, this dude is believes exactly how I believe. And I, I actually went to first form headquarters. I've never met Andy. I got to meet, um, Sal real quick there. Mm-hmm. And I got to listen to actually sell, talk to their team members on like a Wednesday morning, everything that they preach in their podcast, that they are no bullshit that they oh, yeah. run that company. Yeah. I, I got a tour of that whole place. And that place is exactly what they mm-hmm. say they are. Um, my wife buys all their supplements. She's in super good shape and works out and does all that <laughs> shit. And, uh, she, every time she gets a damn order, they've, they've handwritten oh, yeah. card yeah, yeah. in there, you yeah. know. They're, they're, they are as legit as can be. So yeah. a lot of what we've been doing, frankly, I've modeled after some of first form stuff. We hold meetings Monday morning is a meeting about the week, Wednesday morning, kind of uh, based off of what Sal was doing our Wednesday morning meetings. I, we have a lot of young employees like mm. in their early twenties. I just do, uh, uh, I pick topics and I basically do like a class for them on Mm -hmm. stuff that can make them better personally. Sure. Yeah. I talk about finances, debt, taxes, um, uh, how we're building the business, what we're doing, because I want them, you know, if they're the age of my young, my oldest daughter, I I would want a company if she goes to work for someone else to treat them like that and, and make, make better people. And, and that's the thing. Like if you buy knives from a company that's making them in China, they're not doing that shit for your, your kids in your town, you know? Um, I bring in bankers. I bring in insurance people. I try to teach these kids, frankly, what our high schools should be teaching. Yeah, no shit. Like personal finance, how the economy works, how the Fed works, you know, what the IRS does, like how taxes work. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, was. Ex- I mean, I, I would get rid of, I, was, I say this a lot, I would get rid of the foreign language requirement yep. in high school because who fucking cares, right? I mean, you can learn that shit on Babel or something in your right. free time have these people doing practical stuff finance is a good one and i i think there should be some kind of uh civic or community service requirement mm-hmm. for high school graduation four semesters you have to spend four semesters during high school at some point at a soup kitchen or boys and girls club or some shit right yeah i i just don't under we we our education isn't system isn't set up to educate people it's set up to make compliant workers you know what I mean? Yeah. And feed them into the fucking college mill factory at this point. So, if, you know, my kids are in the 4-H, 4-H program and, uh, you know, they have to do some of that stuff. They go deliver gifts to mm-hmm. the like old folks homes yeah. at Christmas and they yeah, go meals on wheels, another good one. Christmas Carol mm-hmm. and do different things. And it's, it's, they make uh, Christmas ornaments for the, the retirement home for their tree and they go talk to the old people. And it's just little things that make them think outside of themselves you know, quite honestly, my kids raising their animals, no matter what they have going for their sports, practice, games, their 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 4-H steer in the barn doesn't give a shit about their football game, what time yeah, they yeah, got home yeah. on the bus. Like, they still have to go feed their animal. Yeah. 
and, yeah. and, and to have kids have to be responsible for something else mm-hmm. besides their own little yeah. lives is uh, to me, it's important and have non-negotiables, right? Cause it's like, you look at the divorce rate in this country, marriage became negotiable at some point. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, do you, do you know what the, uh, and this is kind of a weird statistic, but if you had to guess what the divorce rate for arranged marriages was, what would you guess? Because right now the U.S. divorce rate is about fifty-five percent. Well, you would think arranged would be higher. You'd think it'd be like seventy percent or something. Four. Yeah. Right, because these people come into the relationship knowing that that's where they're going to be, and then they commit to making the relationship the best it can be. Instead of saying, "Well, I've got other options. I've got, I could go on uh, some fucking dating app or right. Facebook and link up with somebody I was with in high school or some shit like that." But teaching people that there are non-negotiables in life. Like, this is the path that I've committed to and I'm going to be the best at it, right? Right. Is super fucking important from a very young age. We yeah. just don't do that anymore. Like, yeah. the, this idea of having a knife that you pass down from one generation to the next. Sure, it's an effigy for your relationship with your parents or your grandparents or whatever that happens to be. But it's also a responsibility. You know what I mean? Like, that. that is that, that knife is your family crest for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. And I'm not going to go out there and embarrass it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to keep it. You know what I mean? Yep. There, there used to be things when we used to hand make things, even like furniture, um, you know, you used to pass down some things. Mm-hmm. And, and these days, everything, it, whether it's relationships or it's something you buy at the store, mm-hmm. like if you walk into Target and look around, everything is made to throw away in 18, yeah, 18 yeah, months. Yeah. Yep. Like, and that, that, by the way, that's what almost killed the American uh car industry is they, they made progressively shittier products so they would break down and people would have to buy a new car every three years instead of every 10 that yeah. that's that's what they did and then raise the price on it and so on and so forth until we got to this situation where nobody can yeah afford like you're you're it's almost like your phone now like the the phone costs as much this phone costs as much as this computer right same price right which right. fair enough whatever yeah but then you buy one every year. Yeah. Like a, a, a sizable portion of the population flip this thing once a year. Well, like electron, anything electronic these days, uh, washing machines, fridges, dryers, uh, deep freezers. Uh, you know, m- my parents, their, their gift from their parents when they got married was a deep freeze. And they had that thing up until I think three years ago. And they've been mm-hmm. married for almost 50 years. That's ridiculous. You know, um, but the, those old those old GE products back in the day lasted forever, mm. and now, you know, you build a home, you're, you're lucky to get five or six down the road years down the road, and your washer and dryer go out, and and there's no customer service there. We just dealt with it. I just paid a guy to come out to the house and fix both of our washer and dryer, and I built my house seven years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like a five year home appliances. Five years is about the cutoff. Yeah, that you're lucky to get that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's for sure. You know, it's it's a a lack of pride ultimately will lead to a lack of expectation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I say this a lot. I'm sure people are getting tired of hearing it, but an old English author, G.K. Chesterton, used to say that um, men didn't love Rome because she was great. Rome was great because men loved her, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like that having that sense of pride and wherever you're from it doesn't like you don't have to be an exceptionalist there are countries that are good other than america i've been to a lot of them there's right. a, fuck, a bunch of dope fucking places to go hang out right. but i say to myself this is the best country because i'm gonna fucking make it the best country and if you're not willing to take that second step 
and and commit to making the thing you're saying true, then you're just a leech. You're a piece yeah. of shit, in my opinion, right? Yeah. You're just okay. And then then it you know predictably uh, uh, kind of just deteriorates into well, you know, is America the best country in the world? Like, oh, I. Yeah, it, it's such a facile, useless argument. Like we're not trying to have a fucking debate, and, and then have judges hold up scorecards for the best country. That's yeah, but France should believe the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Germany should yeah. believe the and, same. They and should then, and then make it. your country the best. And right? and yeah, well, it, Germany may need to calm down a little bit. But yeah, the rest of them. Yeah, but they but those countries should all have everyone should have the same belief and do sure. the best they can to make their country the best. I mean, we do that with like if you if you're on. A professional sports team. If you're on the Braves, and you don't think of your like uh, Chipper Jones used to call it necessary arrogance, right? Like you have to be confident. You have to, yeah, because with confidence comes full potential effort, right? Right. We just don't do that. It, it's it's we look at it like we look at it like it's it's a it's something that just happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's like being a I don't know like. Some people go into businesses. They think, "Oh shit, it's clean today." Like right. yeah, people came in overnight and did that, but it's not magic. You know right. what I mean? There's no fucking. Uh, this isn't the the uh, sword in the stone. Unless you're spells. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and then your employees yeah. clean, and that's yeah. how we do it at our shop yeah. now. Uh, you know, I tell our employees, you know, you you care for this place as if it's your own house, and sure. everyone takes part in mm. cleaning it and cleaning it up yeah. after themselves, and and that actually leads to like. We talk about how do we make our country great and you should have this pride, but but in practicality, how do we actually do it? And, and this is where to me, and, and I, I'm shining the light on us just for a second because we're mm. an example that this is actually possible. Like mm. I was just a stupid goddamn lineman, right? And I started doing this, I started building this company before and after work, morning and night. And I and I, I had a I had a day job up until this thing was actually like really up and, and running. Okay. And and what we are building in our own little community, if every community across the country had one of whatever we're doing in, mm. in, in whatever industry, it doesn't matter, uh, that's really how you, you actually put pride back in this country. Yeah. We're lacking pride as a country because people go to their jobs and a lot of these people are absolutely freaking miserable. Um, because they don't have any pride in what they're actually doing. They're standing sure. there. They don't have any real pride. And our employees, if you ask them, we have 30 employees now. I actually prefer to hire super young employees. Everybody shits on the youth of America. I will tell you right now, Fuck that. I would take a 22-year-old kid right now in my shop mm -hmm. over a 38-year-old <clears throat> Oh yeah you know, yep. fucking guy with a grudge that thinks he, owe, you know, that we owe him a certain place in our company because he's mm. 38. And well, I'll like, tell you this. So when you go to, <clears throat> when you pass selection for tier one units in this country, whether it's DevGrew, Delta, whatever you want to call them, any of the SMUs, um, after you pass selection during your OTC, your operator training, you go back to basic rifle marksmanship. Start all over because mm -hmm. we're going to do it all again. We got our own way. We're going to do it all again. That tabula rasa thing, the blank slate, it's a lot easier to take somebody without any bad habits and, and yeah. mold them into what the fuck they're supposed to be. And I think it's really what you guys do and what Andy and Sal do at First Form, you're essentially not 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 to not treating people like children, but you're behaving the way that a parent would behave, right? Because right. you're a fucking leader. The, right. the, 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 the principles of leadership are the same whether you're it's your child or an employee or just random people out in public right it's always the same right why would it be any different um 
<clears throat> to the pride thing. I don't think people know what pride is anymore. They have shallow pride. You know, they're, they're proud of things they had nothing to do with. But in reality, pride is a result of overcoming shame. Right. Right. Pride is there's I, this belongs to me and there's shit on the floor. I'm going to clean it up. Right. Because right. it's shameful that I would have shit on the floor in my goddamn office. Right. You know what I mean? That is what pride is. Pride is an active or pride. pride yeah. Pride is an action verb. It is the overcoming of shame, whether you have been ashamed or you're just trying to prevent it in the first place. Right. And people don't understand that they don't. There's there's a huge disconnect between uh, effort and outcome. Now, mm -hmm. it's a lot of expectation. And without any expectation that there's going to, that the, eventually the hot potato is going to land in your hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you got to do something about it. Well, and we read letters that our or that our customers send us, we read them to our employees. So they, they understand the kind of impact that they're having and it. And it, we're just a knife company, right? Like yeah. what are we really having an impact? But actually we really actually do have an impact in people's lives. And people talk about, I gave this knife to my son and he went on, he's 12 years old mm -hmm. and he went on his first hunt and he shot his first deer and we sat there and cried together and, you know, we shared in this experience and, you know, it, it, it does, it does matter. And, and I tell my employees, we, you know, we sponsor local little league teams. Uh, mm -hmm. This year we went to the, the local 4-H sale where my kids sell their stuff and we bought uh, some kid in our community steer mm -hmm. and we put all that meat in our, our freezer in the shop for the employees to take home at mm -hmm. night. And I, and I told those guys, I said, um, when you're eating that meat at home, you're eating meat that that your company bought with the money that you helped make and you're helping support a 14-year-old boy that's on the neighboring ranch next door yeah. and now he gets to buy a steer for next year. Yeah. Like, And all of that is coming from the impact that you're making locally. When we had flooding up there in Montana last year down around Yellowstone Park, uh, we ended up launching these Come Hell or High Water t-shirts. Mm -hmm. And we ended up selling uh, $80,000 worth of T-shirts and donated it all to the Red Lodge Area Community Foundation and uh, to help. Uh, and and this specifically, it was a nonprofit to help uh, farmers and ranchers because FEMA and all their fucking brilliance, uh, when they come in with FEMA money, um, it doesn't help businesses. And guess what ranches and farms are? Their yeah. businesses. It was yeah. only help residents. So these ranchers and farmers, of which that community is mostly made up of, their entire hay fields are buried in rock and gravel from these floods. They have no hay crops for the year. They can't feed their cows, all that stuff. All that meat goes into the local economy, butcher shops, restaurants, stores, and FEMA doesn't help them, right? So we go and raise 80 grand and give it to them as a three-year-old company. You know, we, f we flew 20 veterans in the first year. Brandon and I didn't take a paycheck until June. And that year in August, we flew 20 veterans in and taught them how to forge knives and do different things. And it was not to make them knife makers, mm -hmm. but, it, you know, I don't like this idea of, um, you know, of just handing veterans money because they have PTS or whatever. Yeah. To me, uh, and I'm not a veteran, but I'm so I might be speaking out of my ass, but I would rather hand that guy the tools to know, hey, you can spend $100 on a forge and, and go to a scrapyard and buy an old piece of railroad tie. And when you're struggling a bit at night because you're 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 off from your job at four o'clock and you don't go to bed till eleven, for that five six hours you can go out to your garage and beat on steel and forge blades. You can forge hooks for your wife's kitchen. Mm -hmm. You can make a gate. You can become a blacksmith in the part your part time evening. And anybody that's ever forged anything, if you go beat on a hot piece of steel that's two thousand degrees and you're hammering away and you're sweating your ass off, you're not thinking about anything yeah, but that yeah, piece yeah. of steel. 
and no. time passes fast. But we, our company does that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you know, there again, you don't see, you don't see these companies making shit in China mm. doing that for their local community. Well, ironically, it was a Chinese man who, uh, first wrote down this sentiment that you're talking about. His name is uh, Lao Zi. He's a philosopher. In 571 BC, I believe, is when he was born, right? Hmm. So we're talking about 2,600 years ago. And he's, that's where the teacher man. So the fish. year Biden was born. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, a couple years before that. I think. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's the teacher man to fish thing that you've seen in multiple yeah. philosophies. It's in Proverbs, if you're a, a Christian. You've seen it before a lot. And no, you're not speaking out of turn. That's very old wisdom that we seem to lose every time we get into a crisis. Uh, you know, I wrote a piece for Newsweek not too long ago about this, how you don't take, a, you don't take a, especially a man whose prime directive biologically is to provide and protect and then coddle them when they're down. You give them tools to process what they're going through and then you give them a fucking job to do. Period. That's it is the simplest formula ever, and right. we could not have fucked that up worse. Right. And that's why we have record suicide to this day. As a matter of fact, it's going up right now. It's not going down. Right. Um. So yeah, I mean, it's it's they need a sense of purpose. Yeah, you have to have something like that. And then yeah. you know, it's like there there's, <clears throat> you know, a lot of, it, it, there, there's barriers to entry because it's like, well, what can I do? What can I do? You know what I mean? It. But these are practical examples. You find yourself if you're a leader in a workplace create the kind of workplace where people are developing a sense of ownership over what they're doing and right. they would, they will have purpose in that job, you know? And then if you're, if you're past that point, if you're self-employed or you don't, or, or if you're a, 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 someone who doesn't work in the traditional way for whatever reason, there's still so much other shit to do, you know, like coaching little league, for example, which right. you're, you're doing, you're coaching football now. Yep. Um, and then you mentioned something earlier that, that I talk about a lot too. It's like treating people in a way that you would want your family to be treated. If you're a man out in public and you see uh, a, a woman or kids or a woman with kids or whatever, or anybody, even old people or, or, or even another man, like imagine that's your family member. How would you want them to be treated? Right. Right. Not just politeness. But do you want somebody holding the door for them? If you're on a fucking airplane and somebody's trying to put their luggage up and it's a, it's a woman that's 115 pounds, are you going to stand up and do that for her? Or are you going to fucking sit there and watch like an asshole? Right. You know what I mean? 100%. There's there's so many simple things, and you have the opportunity, multiple opportunities every single day to do this shit. It's one of the principles of the show is <clears throat> I'll do something every day to help my country. My countrymen are all men. Super simple, right? You can do that shit every day. And then think about it that way. Yeah, and I promise you, if you're fucking depressed and you start helping people, you're going to not be depressed anymore. Yeah. That's just how life works. A hundred percent. This episode is brought to you by firstform.com forward slash citizen. Free shipping on all orders over $75 when you use the link. And you're not going to spend less than 75 bucks. I mean, they get the best products in the world, especially the OptiGreens. You know me, I don't eat vegetables um, because they're fucking pointless. So... I supplement with OptiGreens 50 from First Form. It is precisely formulated green superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. It's really good, aside from just getting the daily greens into your body that you need. And make sure, by the way, you're taking this with MCT because you have to take anything like this with MCT. 80% of your immune system is located in your gut. 
and your digestive tract, right? So healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness, not to mention that most of your serotonin, I think 96% of your serotonin or 94% is made in your gut as well. So you're going to be in a better mood. You're going to feel better physically and you're going to feel better mentally if you are taking these greens. OptiGreen 50 has 50 chosen ingredients, uh, effectively dosed. It's not necessarily how many ingredients there are, though, but it's, a, it's about the right amount of each. Taste and texture, no, like no other product in the market. It's not gritty. It doesn't have a weird flavor. It's got sweet berry flavors, actually. 100% uh, of the greens are all grown and manufactured inside the United States, and they are bioavailable. Now, they've got other products as well. They've got the microfactor, which you see behind me on every show, uh, and I take them every day. You know, you got essential fatty acids, CoQ10, you get all the stuff you need in one little packet for your daily vitamin pack. And you mix that, you, you make yourself uh, uh, OptiGreens 50 shake, and you, and you take those pills with it, and you're gonna improve your life precipitously. You're gonna feel better, you're gonna look better, so on and so forth. So go to firstform.com, that's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com forward slash citizen, use the code, you're gonna get free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. You know, it's interesting you say that because I don't, I don't look as my at my employees like they are my children, but mm -hmm. they are. We, it, it is similar in that you know one of the one of the Wednesday morning meetings talks I gave them, and and I know Frasillas have done this with their people is when you're wearing that Montana Knife Company hat or sweatshirt out in Missoula, just mm -hmm. around town on a Saturday, you're representing our company. And, and we're getting widely enough known that people are, and we and we actually highlight employees on our social media because I, I also want to build their presence. I want them to feel like they're a part of the team. I want our customers to know and see who's making their knife. Like most days, it's not me, yeah. right? It might be Melissa, it might be Lauren or Tristan or, you know, or Travis, but I, so I want them to be able to see behind the scenes what we do, which is why we do our vlogs mm. every day. Yeah. But I tell those, those employees that comes over the responsibility because now they know who Tristan and Lauren yeah. and Melissa is. And so on a Saturday out in Missoula, when you're helping your neighbor, uh, you know, when they're, when their garbage gets, you know, tipped over by a bear or a mm. dogs or whatever, you're helping them out and you're wearing that hat. People are noticing that stuff, mm. you know, and if you're acting like an asshole, they're also noticing that. Yeah. And it's um, that that's a that's shameful, right? So yeah. you're you're you stare shame in the face. You let it challenge you instead of embarrass you into silence because that's a big thing too. It's the the bystander effect. People don't want to get involved and help other people because they're worried about something or other, right? It's like fuck that, man. Right. If yeah. that was if that like imagine it's your fucking friend or family member or whatever being victimized or or even if it's victimized by circumstance you know what i mean uh how how quickly would you react mm -hmm. and that's how quickly you should react regardless of who the person is we actually on our on our reviews one of our one of our boxes that we that we grade them on is is called ownership and 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 so ownership uh one of the other boxes is time so it's like if you're just coming in you're just putting your eight hours in and going home mm. that that's fine but but owners do more, right? Yeah. And and when when we're behind on something, are you volunteering to come in early? Are you working on a Saturday? Are you doing whatever it takes to get the job done? But the ownership piece also is how you know picking up that piece of garbage, uh, offering to help train that mm. new person that's there, seeing something around the shop <laughs> that's not perfect. We we tell them, we want you to bring processes. We want you to come and say, hey, this is over here. What we're doing is stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we need to fix. I mean, this. who knows better than? And so in the military. 
there's a lot of fucking weight from the brass. There's a lot of command structure that leans on you when you're trying to do operations. They're like, look, dude, I'm fucking on the ground here. Shut right. the fuck up. You exactly. don't know what the fuck's going on. You could have all the knowledge in the world, the institutional knowledge in the world, but if you aren't here right now doing it in the way we're doing it, then you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. right? So, you know, provide me with some insight from your knowledge base, but listen to me when I'm telling you that what you're doing is not working because I'm the one doing it. That seems like a pretty simple thing to do right yeah but it comes with you know it comes with with that's one of the hardest things to do as a business owner frankly is to take a step back and let somebody else do work that you've been doing yeah and and honestly that that that's part of why i you know i i registered the name montana knife company when i was 19 years old but i never started it until i was 39 and a big part of that was is i knew frankly i wasn't i wasn't mature enough uh, I wasn't ready. I financially wasn't ready. Mm. I wasn't ready to lead a company. I had no idea how to build a company. I mean, quite frankly, even when I launched it, I still was trying to figure this shit out of Salem today. But uh, that 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 empowering other people to do to do the job for you mm. and trust them to do it and train them to do it. Um, we tell our employees, you know, uh, we want to try and make this process uh, so foolproof that if. If, if, if you make a mistake the first time, that's, that's our fault. We yeah. didn't train you well enough, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's over and over again, uh, that's either our fault because we haven't put in uh, systems to, to fix that, or it's your fault because you, know, you haven't followed the practices and whatnot that we've, right. that we've set out. But that ownership piece, again, that leads to the pride that people can go home at night and go, I, I laid everything out today. I did my absolute best. I acted like an owner. I helped so-and-so in the shop. I picked up garbage. I did all this. And they can go home feeling like they accomplished something. Mm. And I just, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that it doesn't have to be huge manufacturing. I'm not talking about manufacturing uh, coming back in this country from a from a you know a gigantic standpoint. Yes, that'd be nice if Caterpillar brought all of manufacturing back, right? Um, or or whoever, whatever the, mm. the company is. But I'm talking individual people can start small business around the country. Uh, we you know Where we're at, we need butcher shops. You, you yeah. go to take a steer to the butcher shop, and they're like, oh, it's going to be five months. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it, yeah. it's unbelievable. Like, we need small business, and we need manufacturing, but we also need government to stay the hell out of the way. Yeah. Because I was told the other day, I, I was talking to a guy and telling him he should start a business, uh, a butcher shop, and he said, you, you literally are not allowed to do it in Missoula County because of all their bullshit laws, yeah. right? Their liberal bullshit mm-hmm. stuff. So um, the, the pain, the taxes, you know, the amount, we, I explained to my employees the amount of money we sent out in taxes in April, we just worked for the next three months to make up for that. Yeah. Well, people have this. So pe- people will look at their, salary for the year and the amount of taxes they paid and think, well, shit, my effective tax rate was, you know, 15 or 20 or 30% in some cases. It's uh, on average in America, your effective tax rate is 54%. Yep. 54. Because you as a business owner, you bought products from somebody who was taxed on them and you get taxed on the purchase of that product. So there's two moment there's two taxable events right there then you pay uh payroll tax to your employees who right. produce a product who you then get taxed on as well and then you go spend money and you pay sales tax everywhere you go then you buy a home you pay tax on that and you pay tax on that property for the rest of your life and then you pay gas tax you pay you pay a, a resort tax, tax you pay everything 
they're, they're it, it comes down to about on average for the average American, you pay fifty four percent of your money gets consumed by the government. So I, I on one of my Wednesday mornings, I explained to my employees. I said, let let's just say let's just say your I, I used I used forty percent as the number for mm. them. Uh, I said with your state sales ta- or your state income tax, federal income tax, property taxes, all that. And God forbid you have money, then you're paying capital gains tax as well. Yeah, and I explained I explained to them you you might not think that you're paying uh, uh, property tax because you rent, but guess who's paying property <laughs> yeah, yeah, tax? You, it's I promise you, it's folded into the rent. It's bud. you paying. You know, it, they're bud. not they're not they're not fucking eating that cost. No, no. But <laughs> I explained to them. State Street are not eating that cost. And and this is what I think people. I, I this is to me. If if we explain to people this structure, they'd care a lot more about their government mm-hmm. going on. So let's just say it's forty percent. Okay, what's forty percent of three hundred and sixty-five days? Like one hundred and seventy days, mm-hmm. or something like that. One hundred and eighty days. Um, yeah, it's more than that. It's it's like two hundred days. It is forty uh, percent. It's one hundred forty-six days. One hundred forty-six. Yes. Days. So let's just say next year that the federal government came out and said, "Okay, we got a new tax structure." Mm. Next year, for the first one hundred forty-six days of the year. Uh, all the money that you make will just come to the government and you don't have to worry about the IRS. You don't have to worry about you're, you're doing your taxes. You don't have to, we're just going to take all the money up front. So for the first 146 days of the year you work, you're not, you're not going to make a dime yeah. in money. And then by, by the end of the year, the rest of the year, everything is yours, right? At the end of the year, it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. for 146 days next year, and what is that in, in uh, what is that, four, five, that's five months, mm-hmm. basically. For the first five months of the year, you're not going to make a penny. If you if you actually structured the tax system like that, people would be real engaged in their voting right. process. Yeah, but that's not how scams work, right? Right. You just take a little bit at a time. Right. It's it's the VIG, right? Like we're in a huge uh, uh, numbers racket, yep. a mob-based numbers racket, and the government is the mob. That's essentially what we're yeah. in. I, I, I say what uh, I, I was I told a congressman Congressman Rosendale the other day on the phone. I should be able to sue the federal government and say I I, I refuse now to pay taxes mm. until you guys can account for where my tax money goes. Yeah, yeah. Balance one budget. Yeah. Like the so the DOD for example, the Department of Defense, they haven't had they they do an audit every year. They haven't passed an audit since before nine eleven. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, on on September tenth, two thousand one, Donald Rumsfeld. You can fucking fact check this all you want, Donald Rumsfeld. And it's unrelated to nine eleven. And just I'm, it's for a marker in time. That's it. Relax. Yeah. Relax with the conspiracies. But he announced the day before nine eleven that there were one point. It was one point seven trillion dollars missing from the from the federal budget. Like how how is that possible? Trillion yeah. with a T? Are you fucking yeah. serious? Yeah. Like the and this is before you know government swelled to the level it was now so where did all that money go yeah trillions of dollars well you know where it went it went to lockheed and raytheon and general dynamics and fucking boeing yeah. and all these other fucking companies rogan and i were talking last night we were bullshitting <clears throat> about all <throat> this stuff and and we were talking about all the money that we're sending to ukraine <clears throat> while we have uh smoldering ashes in maui of our own citizens' homes and businesses completely demolished, and not not that I necessarily personally think the federal government should should actually pay to build back mm. people's homes and businesses. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion about what the federal government really should be for. But if we're going to argue to send money to another country, then it's pretty easy to turn around and argue 
we should actually be taking care of our own country first. <laughs> and like Rogan yeah. said last night, we accidentally sent $6 billion to Ukraine. But if you do the math on what it would cost to, to build every home and business back in Maui completely mm-hmm. ground up, it'd be $5 billion. And we, 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 we just accidentally sent $6 billion over there in, in a mistaken budget process or whatever the hell they were doing. It's just mind boggling. It is absolutely insane. But your, your premise is correct that, you know, you have to demonstrate to people like you're doing with your employees and, and like, we need to message better. This is why I do this show with people. You know, it's easy to get whatever people call black pill, like, Oh, voting's pointless. I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, we should pay attention certainly to the, uh, to how our voting is happening, like the mechanics of it, because people are fucking around with that stuff. Right. Um, but it does matter that you're involved. Yeah. It matters that you're fucking involved at, and preferably at the lowest possible level, but energetically at the lowest possible level. Uh, you were talking about, uh, uh, you know, FEMA coming in when FEMA comes in and handles an emergency situation. You're absolutely right. They go to Walmart. Yeah. That's where they go to get their shit. They go to Walmart, yeah. they go to target Amazon, so on and so forth. But the reality of the situation, you're talking about a community that it needs to rebuild right? There's something has happened there and they need help. So what, what effectively happens is people get farther on the tit of government and then they right. lose their ability to provide for themselves. A dollar sent to Walmart is a dollar. It's gone, right. right? A dollar spent at a local butcher shop multiplies seven to 11 times before it leaves that local yep. community, seven to 11 times. So, you know, these are things that we can probably figure out relatively easily. You know, it's like, you don't have to be, you don't have to personally be a business owner to understand this shit, but you, you get to do it's people have said this many times before. I think it actually sprouted from the labor movement back in the day, but every dollar you spend is a vote for the kind of world you want to live in. You know what I mean? And if you want fucking corporate overlords, keep buying shit on Amazon all the time. You know what I mean? It's, it's why I, I made a choice six or seven years ago to refuse to wear any hat or shirt that is of any company that I don't absolutely support and basically yeah. know the owners of you'll see me wearing black rifle stuff mm. you'll see me wearing meat church or volcourts and firearms or nosler you know loophole companies that are american companies mm. people i know that are doing the right thing or at least trying you know and i am definitely uh well i, I was going to say to what you were just saying one of the probably the best things that makes me feel the best about what we're doing is an example of uh where we buy our all of our wood products, so our uh, cutting boards, mm. our knife hangs, uh, that stuff, we're having those custom made by a family in Billings, Montana. Uh, those guys have grown a business, hired employees, all basically around around the demand that we've created sure, yeah. for, for on them. Because yeah. uh, every chef set that we buy is a potential customer that wants a now a cutting board mm. or a block and that stuff. And, and he's told me several times how much he appreciates what we're doing for his family mm. and his company. And it's not even something that I like set out to do or intend mm. to do. And it's, it's just the, it's just the consequence of having a business operating in this yeah. country. It's the same thing with all our leather goods. They're all made in Idaho mm. by Francesca with Teton leather. Um, <clears throat> so to your point, that stuff is getting spent over and over and over yeah. in this country. Yeah. It's why I, I, it's it's a catchy little quip, but I like to say uh, when we all do better, we all do better, right? Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. It's just the that's why capitalism works if it's not fucked with by governments mm-hmm. and and predators and large government. 
Um, I am a hypocrite, though, uh, when it comes to, and, and I've heard you say this before. I've heard you say it on Drinking Bros mm-hmm. and on here. Uh, we can bitch all we want about our federal government. None of us really individually are changing that. We can vote. We can do our best. Sure, yeah. But it, it's a it's a dumpster fire that just continues to have gas poured on it. Um, but to be more involved, and, and part of me just absolutely uh, dreads the idea of doing it, but more involved on a local level. Mm-hmm. Like we have a West Valley community council. I've never been to a meeting. Yeah. You know, and quite frankly, I was, I was discussing some things with some of our County, uh, County members. Cause we're looking at land and buying, building mm-hmm. a building and all these things. And try, we're gonna have to deal a lot with the County and permitting processes, yeah. which again, I also dread, <laughs> but it made me realize Th- those are the levels that we need to be involved in. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause like our city community council in Missoula, it's a dumpster fire as well. Yeah. I mean, it, but the, but you can bitch about all you want, but I've never been to a meeting. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, well, yeah. I mean, if you, so Plato said, if you refuse to take part in your own governance, you're doomed to be ruled by fools, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the, the, the worst and dumbest motherfuckers that exist will, slide right into that power vacuum and the and and they'll fucking make hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of their political career yeah by fleecing the fuck out of you right yeah and it's they're a middleman politicians in america are middlemen for large corporations who are just trying to extract wealth from the population that's all they are yeah um but you know there's a lot of ways to fight back against that the most important one is to patronize small business, start small business, get involved in local politics, right? Yeah. Um, and you have, um, on Drigger Bros yesterday, when we recorded yesterday, um, you gave Drigger Bro of the Week to your wife. Um, and it is true that every behind every great man is a woman that's supporting and pushing them. I, I love the story of uh, John Adams and his wife, his wife was like his closest confidant. This is in a time when women didn't necessarily have any fucking rights or say yeah. in public and shit like that. But this man who helped shape the fabric of America didn't go to his attorney colleagues for advice. He went to his wife. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's an important that that's a really, I think it's a really uh, important thing to do is to have good partners, whether, whether it's your wife or, the people you associate with, you know what I mean? Um, the friends that you keep, because you are, you, you will tailor your experience in life to the people that are around you. That's just a natural human thing to do. It's, it's, we're, we're born through community like that. So I'm, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you have that. And now you've, you know, kind of, you kind of converted that in some way into the way that you even do business, right? Mm -hmm. Like from a leader, you're a leader. Yep. Right, and you behave as a leader. It's important to fucking do that shit. Yeah, and, and uh, honestly, I'm definitely an imperfect leader. I mean, I'm 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 learning because I've never been in this position before. I was, you know, a, a custom maker forever mm-hmm. in my own shop, and then I was a, a lineman on a crew. You know, um, but it, it, it's it's come from observing other people that I think are really great leaders. Andy being one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, with first form. That um, you know, I've learned things from watching you know Evan at Black Rifle, mm-hmm. what they've done, what they've built in in a short amount of time. Uh, you know, good and bad, right? When you when you when you see these different leaders make sure, different yeah. moves, yeah. Uh, um, asking a lot of questions and 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 frankly relying on uh, some of the people that I hire. So I think the most important. I, I look at myself really as a a general manager of mm-hmm. a baseball team. Um, 
if you can put the best pieces on the field, then you can win championships. Yep. You know, n- none of this stuff is going to happen if I just try to do it all myself. My my director of operations, uh, Andrew, he was a he was a former ranger, wor- uh, worked at Amazon, uh, absolutely phenomenal guy. Uh, my business partner, Brandon, does our marketing stuff, just mm. phenomenal. So I've got a hell of a team around me. But my wife, uh, she she's the one really that. Uh, uh, I mean, she's she leveled me up in a lot of different ways, honestly, when we got married. Because mm-hmm. I had four young kids. I didn't think I was ever going to get remarried. Because yeah. um, I'm, I'm very selective and very picky. Uh, I, I might be shitty at a lot of things, but I'm a good dad. I'm a mm-hmm. good father. I have really good kids. Like yeah. I hate kids that are assholes. My yeah. kids are not assholes. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you. It, it's like dogs. Yeah. There aren't bad dogs. Yeah, you there's just I mean? bad dog yeah. owners. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I have phenomenal kids. But uh, when she came along, uh, she was the one that when I told her about kind of my dream of this company, she was like, uh, "I have the kids, I got the house, mm. get to your shop, put in the hours." And now she's the head of our customer service. So if you email Montana Knife Company, it's Jessica that answers. And the reason for that is I want someone that cares to the amount that that we as owners care. Mm talking to our customers, you know, so it's not just a customer service, uh, teenager, you know, we have other young kids in other positions in the company, but when you email in, if you have a problem, it needs to be addressed. Mm. You know, we want to take care of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're, uh, choosing and to some small degree, the people, certainly your, your spouse, um, and to some degree, your friends as well, but the people that you work with, the type of business you do, you're choosing the people that you're going to war with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's so, you know, you better be fucking careful. Yeah. You know, if try, I I would say, trust your senses. Your, your brain is a lot better at being a brain than you are at thinking. Yeah. Eight, look, 93% of all communication is nonverbal. So if you're getting a weird vibe from somebody, there's a fucking reason for it. You should pay attention to that shit. Um, and that doesn't mean you just write people off either. Like you, a lot of these, there, there are some people who are shitty people because nobody's ever fucking told them to stop being shitty. Right. So, you know, grow some fucking balls and be like, Hey dude, you're, this behavior is unacceptable. But right. then, you know, this is what I, <clears throat> I t- talk about with bullies a lot. Um, you know, if you got young kids, that that stuff's going to happen from time to time. Maybe. Uh, hopefully it isn't your kid doing the bullying, but if it isn't, you know, I think we handle that situation the wrong way. We demonize the act of bullying and thus the bully. Like that's just a bad kid. Well, that's right. not true. It's a kid who's probably getting bullied by their parents or somewhere else. Right. Or they're right. not getting attention. So yeah, triage, stop the bullshit that's going on and put some distance between, you know, the, the, the bullied and the bully, but then maybe get down on that kid's level and ask him what the fuck's going on here, but yeah. like, what, why are you doing this? And try to fit, understand them. And the same is true when you uh, are dealing with adults, whether it's subordinates of yours, your friends or whatever. Right. Right. Like the, if, if pride is the result of overcoming shame, then you have to apply some degree of shame mm-hmm. to give people their pride back. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Uh, and you know, maybe you're a dick for it sometimes. No, I, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah, and I, t- to your point, my my boy has always been the biggest, strongest kid in mm. his class. He's a he's a big kid. Like he's he's uh, fifteen now. He's six four and two hundred and five pounds. <laughs> you know, he's a he's a monster. Um, and so he always was the the kid that could 
could could bully if he mm. was if he was raised that way. But uh, I always told him, you know, with with being the biggest and strongest kid comes some responsibility to help protect the kids that that can't. And you know, I, I love that old analogy of are you are you a wolf, a sheep, or a sheepdog? Mm. You know. And I was, I've explained that to him since he was young. Like, if you see when your little buddy's being picked on, you know, you, you step in and stop it. Yeah. You know, and, and at times you might have to actually just flat out punch somebody in the face, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, most of the time just stepping in and saying, hey, that's enough mm-hmm. is, is all it takes. And, sure, yeah. You know, I've gotten messages from his teachers where – He's done that stuff and all the, all the accolades on the football field that, you know, he's a, he's a hell of an athlete, all those things with all my kids, they all are. Um, I've, I've always told them I've never been more proud than when I get a message from a teacher, like, Hey, this kid was really down today and your son Hank went over and like pat him on the back and told him it was going to be all right. And Mm. you know, that just happened recently where he, he basically took a kid that wasn't one of the cool kids. Mm you know, Hank is the cool kid and he went and took him under his arm and, and, uh, told him he was going to be fine, you know? And, and those are the things like helping your community there again, mm-hmm. you can teach your kids to do that stuff as well. Yeah. We used know? to, I mean, that was the standard we, in in the U S and America, we raise protectors, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody's going to be big, strong, fast enough to physically protect other people. Right. But you know, there, there's a lot of danger in the world. It's not all physical. Right. You know what I mean? There's bad ideas. There's fucking depression. There's all kinds of shit, you know? And uh, it, it's whatever gift you have. And sometimes it's just the gift of having had a negative experience before. Right. Is a, it is not just an opportunity, but it's a responsibility to leverage that towards the betterment of society, mm-hmm. particularly those closest around you. Um, and that's why that's my favorite principle of ours, to help people. Because mm-hmm. it, it is, one, it doesn't cost you shit. Right, there's no cost to that, but the benefit isn't just present and immediate, but it compounds over time. Yeah. Somebody who gets helped goes and helps somebody else. That's how mm-hmm. it works, typically, right? And there's no reason not to do it either. But you know, it, and it doesn't stop in the same way that you know, if you're not uh, if you're not a parent of an actual child or something, that doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of being a leader in your community. Just right. in the same way that once we take off the uniform, the military uniform, our service doesn't end there, right? Like right. now, especially these days, it's fucked up as shit as your service may be just beginning at that point, yeah. frankly. Yeah. So it's like, except if you want to live in a world that's a bunch of fucking dumb cunts on TikTok doing stupid shit all the time, people walking, stepping over homeless people, or just the homeless crisis that we, that we have right now, all the crazy, stupid shoplifting shit that's going on, and just all the, you know... Uh, dumb shit in society. If you want to live in that world, good. Go right. back to your house, watch TV for four hours a night, and right. don't say and don't don't interact with people. But if you want to live in a world that fucking matters, a good world, then just put that little bit of effort. Is all it takes. It's all it takes. We, we carry this uh, uh, in buds. They they carry around a four hundred pound log, right? But it's twelve dudes, so yep. it's not that heavy. You know right. what I mean? Until somebody's not doing their Until job. Until somebody doesn't do their job. Then it gets progressively heavier. Every single person who says, you know what, I'm going to fuck this, I'm not going to vote, or fuck this, uh, 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 I don't believe in this anymore, or this isn't worth my effort. Every single person that drops out of that makes it heavier, right? right. And eventually the log drops. And the secret of all this, there's, there's two. Uh, the first is that... <clears throat> the weight never gets lighter. You get stronger, mm-hmm. right? 
And the second is we can't do it alone. Like you, you can't do it alone. And, and that's the shame. That should be the shame. It's like when I grew up, it was shameful for somebody else to be working and you sit down and watch them or something like right. I, There's no fucking way I could do that. And it wasn't yeah. like, I didn't get told that it was just by watching other people around me. And then you yeah. really, you, you really experience it in the military. Um, and, or in, or it's in sports, same, it's, sports teams or whatever. It's right? the same way with the, you know, with the lineman culture, you know, that a lot of people told us, uh, guys that would come and work would say it's, mm. it's about as close to the military as yeah. they had ever been was the lineman deal. Because your, your, your big events are emergencies and people need power to stay alive. You know what I mean? It's well, like, and, it's a serious and, situation. And your life is literally on the line. And so is your brothers next to you in that bucket truck. So, yeah. you know, there was a lot of trust, you know, when you, when you came in as a groundman, you were lower than whale shit. You shut your mouth and you do your, yeah. you, you work right. Yeah. And and you stay better. You, 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 you stay busy. You better mm. never just be standing around looking at your phone. Right. If there's nothing to do. Go clean the truck. It's not about hazing too. People think that, Oh, there's you're, no. I'm a young guy. So they're giving me shit. It's like, no, I'm trying to teach you. It's a very important lesson. Once you get up to my level, cause really people at the, at the higher level, these, the, 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 the new guy that, the new guy thinks, well, they don't respect me. He's like, no, I've been there. That's why I do respect you. Yeah. I, every time you lace up the fucking boots and do that job, I know that it sucks because I did it too. That's the whole fucking point, right? Well, and, and it's uh, another <clears throat> another name sometimes for hazing can, can also just be testing. And, <laughs> and, and an example of that is, is, you know, with those young guys, we know those are eventual journeymen. Yeah. So, you know, I was told, I, I went in there with four kids at 30 years old. I had been doing what I had done. I had accomplished a lot in my knife career. Mm. And I you could, you could kind of equate that to a lot of times when people come out of the military and they go into another job. Those guys didn't give a shit about my knife career, and they mm. don't give a shit about your military career, yep. or what you did, or whatever and, you did, or and, where you went to school, or anything. It doesn't, shit. Matter. doesn't matter. What, yeah. what matters is what you do today mm-hmm. and every day after it. And so, you know, for example, the the shovel thing. When when we were backfilling a pole hole that we had just planted a power pole in mm. the ground, if the if the foreman grabbed a shovel and started shoveling that shit in there. You you were expected as an apprentice, as a mm. as a young journeyman, or or just a groundman. You better wrestle, and we would do it literally wrestle that foreman to the ground yeah. and take his shovel from him, and he wouldn't want to give it up. But you you take that shovel and you do the work, right? And it showed that you actually you're stepping in, you're doing that work, mm. you have that self awareness. But a lot of it was with the hazing. There were times I was treated. Uh, really super unfairly mm-hmm. in certain instances where I knew the guy that was chewing my ass was wrong. But mm-hmm. a lot of that was testing to see how's this guy going to react? Yeah. Are, are you going to blow your top and say, fuck you foreman and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know throw your hard yeah. hat and want to get mm-hmm. in a fight? Or are you going to eat your shit sandwich and mm-hmm. just move on and do better the next day? And, and really what that testing was for was when you're in a storm and there's trees and power lines and there's incredibly high tensions mm-hmm. everywhere, there's potential hot wires how are you going to perform under pressure? Yeah. You know, and, and then do I trust that guy? And this is why we were such a proponent proponent of bringing in groundmen and then making them apprentices and mm. taking them through that three and a half year apprenticeship to where when you turn out, it's much like leaving buds, you become a seal, you get pinned, you go to your first unit. Mm. And those guys are like, put your fucking trident in the locker and clean the shitter. Yeah, right. Yeah, like yeah. you think you're a journeyman <laughs> lineman. But you're st- you still haven't done shit, and we don't trust you. No. You have to earn that trust. And and when you're in a bucket truck and you're around seven, ten thousand volts, hundred thousand volts, 
I need to know that if I'm going, if I'm going to turn around to do something that you're going to say, Hey, watch your back. There's a hot wire right behind you. Yeah. And you have each other's back. Your, your lives are literally on the line with each other. Yeah. You know, um, that sense of community and those guys are hard on you because they love you. And they also know that if they're not, and they let you get away with stupid shit down the road, it could cost you your life or theirs. So Machiavelli says, uh, if you are kind, when you're supposed to be cruel, you'll be forced to be cruel and you're supposed to be kind. Right. Yeah. That's a great simple, saying. right? You set the tone, prepare people. You're, you're doing everyone yourself included, but it's all a society by not holding people accountable. And it's yeah. not that like fucking nut up, man. What right. you got to have an awkward conversation, right? Oh no. Life's like a fucking, come on, man. Is that worse than going to somebody's funeral? Right. You know what I mean? That's, it's just yeah. fucking a, a retarded way to look at things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, so, Hey man, you got to fucking pay attention. Like, I don't, yeah. it's like, I don't give a shit if you're getting a divorce at home mm. or if your kid's acting like a shithead, uh, when you, when you walk through those doors and you're, you climb into that bucket yeah. and we start flying up in the air, uh, you have to be hyper-focused. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm working on a piece, another piece for Newsweek right now about why, um, about the recruiting crisis. I don't think there is a recruiting crisis. I think there's a crisis of leadership. Right and of mission, people don't believe in any of this stuff. A pride anymore. crisis. So yeah. If you, I, I, I say this all the time to people. When you and I were in fucking, you know, when we were kids, high school, middle school, whatever the fuck. If somebody were to ask us, what does it mean to be an American? We would have something to say about that, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think back, even back then, the vast majority of kids would have some sort of national pride. Certainly, yeah. but they would at least have an answer to that question. If you ask that question now, and look, they, you would get a, a myriad of answers, disparate mm-hmm. answers. Some people will have people have very different experiences, but if you ask that question now, I don't know that anybody could answer that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like because we've <clears throat> we've accepted shame, we actually use it as a weapon now. Yeah, you know what I mean? To, def, to or uh, sorry, not as a as a as a we use it now as a defensive weapon instead of an offensive weapon. It should be used as an offensive weapon. Hey. What you did is fucking stupid. You should not be proud of that. Mm-hmm. But you should be proud, or you should, you should want to be proud of the work you've done. Do it better. Mm-hmm. Fucking lose weight. You know what I mean? Right. Stop being rude to people. You're embarrassing yourself. Um, stop fucking being an addict. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing your family. Um, now, it's a, now it's a shield. It's like, don't body shame me. Right. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You have visceral fat on your organs. You're going to die. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. The fuck are we even talking about now? It's, we got to turn that corner and it starts with each individual. When, when in society, when the individual has the most power, everyone gets taken care of better. Right. When power is bottom up, everybody gets taken of because you have, you, you, (laughs) there, the bulk of people are now working towards that goal instead of having just a small amount, like the government, how big is the government? Two million people, I think. Yeah. Like, if you include uh, all of state, local, and federal government in America, it's something like two. Not including the military and shit, it's something like two million people. Out so of three hundred and fifty, yeah. So it's like, yeah. So the two million, they're just gonna take care of everybody's problems. No, you take care of your own fucking problems, right? And that's why we set it up this way, and it it, it has the added benefit of being resilient against authoritarianism as well, right? Because when the government shows up and nobody has their hand out, they don't have any fucking power there. Well, you, 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 nobody, nobody cares about walking a tightrope if there's a safety mm. net under you. Yep. If there's a safety net under you, all of a sudden that tightrope, you become a lot more mm. hyper-aware, vigilant. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it, it, it was, it, it, and it's sad, man. Like you, you walk out last night, we walk out from dinner, getting ready to go to Joe's place. And there's, where'd you go to dinner, by the way? Uh, uh, V's, is it Danny V's or, uh, Eddie V's. Eddie V's. Yeah, it's good. It was really good. Yeah. But we walked out from there and there was, I, I counted 10, 10 homeless people sleeping on the street oh, yeah. out there at nine thirty at yeah. night. Um, and it's just, you know, and quite honestly, if you expect government to fix it, how, how can government fix it? They're not going to fix it. There is no easy answer. No. I mean, because it's it. like, you, you can't, it's like, it's it's custom and a la carte, right? Just like your diet. It's mm-hmm. going to be a little bit different. We, there are some general principles that we can all, uh, or a, a, there's, a, there's a, a nutritional fact sheet that applies to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But it... I, I am plussed up or deficient on different things than you are, mm-hmm. right? My body absorbs things in a different way than yours, so my diet has to be different by necessity. Mm-hmm. So you can't have a food pyramid that tells people, well, you should eat this amount of servings or this. Not, right. that, not that any of that information was even correct yeah, at all. it was actually but, flipped. But the format is wrong. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, that's not how you do that shit. You don't need a certain amount of this, this, and this, and you can't prescribe that to 300 million people. That's fucking stupid, right? Right. So that's, it only works from the ground up because it gets tailored customly to people. And then when enough people in a certain area have this, which is, it's why, you know, some level of, uh, uh, a homogenous society is more effect like sweet northern european countries were more resistant to covid shit than we were right mm-hmm. because they are all of that one race it doesn't mean that you should fucking start uh, uh fencing off your places by race i'm not saying that <laughs> but there, but it does it's just an example of why that is more effective right. in, in that particular regard so to we're not going to be like that we are globally a melting pot to some degree now in most places so the solution is to stop thinking like old homogenous society and think like new integrated society. And be like, okay, well, we need we we absolutely have to have things built from the ground up, right. leadership from the ground up, product products from the ground up, so on and so forth, so that they even can be tailored, right? Otherwise, yeah. we're get we're, it's going to get this this whatever this is, this uh, integrated globalist society is going to continue down that path, and we're going to continue getting weaker and dumber unless we just change our game plan up a little bit. So to, 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 and and I, I have an idea that I I think the government could actually, could actually participate in with federal funding and make a difference. And it would be, uh, in, in a way to actually provide some hope. So, uh, for kids in the inner city, if you're, if you're 11 or 12 and you're in the inner city, maybe you don't have a father, your mother's working however many jobs, maybe you don't have any parents at all. You're basically being raised by the streets. When, when you look around and all you see are homeless people sleeping on the street, drugs being dealt by your older brothers, yeah. everything going on, where's the hope, right? And 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 I and I truly kind of understand the more I've traveled in knife making in the last 20 years and been to places outside of Montana, I realize like when I'm walking around in the Bronx and, and, and I did that several times where I just walked the streets mm. places I probably shouldn't have been. Uh, if I'm truly honest, I look around and I'm like, man, if I'm, if I, I was 11 years old and I had a mm. guy that hunted, that was little league baseball coach that taught me, offered to teach me how to make knives. What's, how is that happening in these inner cities? Like yeah. that's not happening. Right. And so if the federal government funded something where they went into the worst areas of say Chicago, LA, those places, and you build a huge facility and you put 
uh, a toilet and a sink and and a refrigerator and a few things on the other end of the building. And you said to to a group of kids, we're going to build some walls mm. from here to there. We're going to provide. We're going to make some rooms, <clears throat> and then we're going to le- run electricity from this part of the building to that bathroom. Mm. We're going to turn those lights on. We're going to turn the refrigerator on in the kitchen. And then we're also going to take water from here and we're going to plumb pipes all the way across this building. And we're going to make that toilet flush. And then, and we're going to teach you how to, mm. to build a roof, to do wiring, shingles, plumbing, all that stuff. If I would give kids even the opportunity, if they're 15, 16 years old and flunking everything to drop out of high school and enter that building yeah. and learn trades from the ground up and then show those kids and say, Hey, did you know a starting wage for a journeyman lineman is $27 an hour Yeah, yeah. for not a, I'm sorry, not a journeyman lineman for a, for a ground, yeah, a groundman. And a, then it's for, a, for just a, a piece of shit ground for a journeyman lineman. I think it's like, isn't it like in the low 40s? It's 45. Yeah. 45. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, amount of money. Uh, uh, Same thing with welding yes. electricians. I mean, yeah. which any, is any, stuff that we need. We're not, we're not running. We're, we're still going to be drinking water. We're still going right. to need power. What the fuck, man? These aren't going away. Right. You know what I so mean? So you, you sit those kids down, and, and, and so let's say half those kids, four or five of those kids, they just take, for some reason, they just take to the plumbing. Mm-hmm. Like, they can do pipe fitting. Uh, they get it. Somehow they understand. Or the electricity part. Like, mm. electricity, we always refer to it as FM, which is yeah. fucking magic. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but some people's brains just got it oh yeah and they just understand like electricity yeah. flows through here and there's resistance and there's mm-hmm. grounding and this and that same with architecture like people some people see in 3d like that they're able to design like okay i've got this much space i'm probably going to need to put the second story on that side of the building they just understand it maybe it's I mean? concrete yeah maybe it's framing and understanding structure and they can they can build that whole building in their brain mm-hmm. And they can, but they they'll can never know that it. unless they fucking get into the weeds on it. You right. Know what I mean? And that's a government program that you could fund and you could say, and at the end of it, guys, we're going to rip it all out. Mm. And the next class is going to come in. You're going to learn how to demo, mm. to tear down, how to take this thing apart. And then what we're going to do with all that material, we're going to salvage it. We're going to take it down and recycle it. And, and you, you show those kids how to build something and be proud of something when they walk away. Uh, in my first knife shop, uh, it's actually sitting at my house right now. My first knife shop that wasn't the one my dad built in a lean to, uh, my senior year construction class in high school built it. It's a shed. Mm-hmm. We built that. I bought all the materials myself. Um, my senior classmates, I had like 10 classmates in that particular class. We built that shed and I drug it home on the ice with my dad's tobacco <laughs> in the winter. Uh, but I you use it for ice fishing still or you are, or not still, but like back, you use it for ice fishing or you just put it at your house? No, I drug it home and I used it for my knife making. Oh, okay. And yeah, then I going, bought yeah. an old trailer house frame and mm. I cut it down and we lifted it up with our backhoes and mm. I put on that frame. And when I first got married and moved to Missoula, I drug it into Missoula and plugged it into my boss's wall of his shop and his parking lot worked out of it for a year. And then it sat next to my house that I bought or that I built for the next three years. That was my shop, a 10 by 14 shed. And the point is, is I had an incredible pride in that as a kid that my classmates and I built that. It's called the Ikea effect, by the way. What's that? So if you construct something with your own hands, even if it's only the last 20%, that's, this is where the Ikea part comes in. So if you get something, if you buy something from the store, even that is mostly prefab, but you assemble the last 20% yourself, then you, you, you will hold on to that piece of, 
material longer than you normally would. Interesting. It's it's, it's a you have more appreciation. Vi- yes, it's a very well studied psychological principle, but it happens in every facet of life, not just from manufacturing goods around your house or anything, but like the investment you have in your business and people, even right. right. Like the more time and energy you give to a human being, the more you're going to care for that person. Yeah, it, and it and it's a reciprocal thing as well, right? Yeah. And that that used to be the thing that bound us all together. Uh, our grandparents' generation and m- pretty much every generation before them, this is how life went. I'm of a certain age, so I'm going to learn a trade or, or join the military yep. or whatever, whatever it was you're going to do. I'm going to find a profession and I'm going to find a wife and then we're going to make some kids and I'm going to make sure those kids' lives are better than mine somehow. Right. right? And that, that is a very good template for well, society. Why, why are we forcing these kids who are 16, 15 years old, have had nothing in their life, they're flunking everything. What? And you, you, you either say we're gonna, we're gonna just flush you through all the way through the system through twelfth mm-hmm. grade and kick you out in the street, and we're gonna pat ourselves on the back and say you graduated. Yeah. yeah. You know, or why are we gonna force that kid to be miserable to sit in class? Because let's face it, young men were not designed to sit eight hours a day in a classroom. No, I don't think anybody was, but certainly not young boys. I yeah. mean, it's like, and, but, you know, luckily we've got pills to give them, so they'll yeah, calm exactly. down, Yeah, right? exactly. All this ADD bullshit, and, and I, I look at a lot of these kids, and this is where I, I disagree with a lot of my friends, but a lot of this ADD stuff where we're put, giving kids pills, that kid either needs his ass beat and mm-hmm. told to shut the fuck up and sit down, or he's just a boy, and he's just busy, yeah. and he's full of piss and vinegar, mm-hmm. and he needs something to do. Yeah, I mean, if you're a business owner, right, and you have, let's say you've got a slow, slow-ish tempo business, and this dude's just bouncing off the walls all the time, as, a, as somebody, or in the military or something like that, as somebody who is trying to leverage human capital, which is what you should be trying to do if you're a fucking business owner, right. or, or if you're an educator or anything, any, if you're any, in any part of the supply chain of delivering a good human being that's a productive member of society, you should be trying to leverage human capital at the best possible way you can. And a big part of that is taking care of people and shit like that. But if you see somebody who is overactive like that, that's a tool. It's not a fucking, it, it is a right. feature, not a bug. Right. You do not need to treat that person. You need to give them something to do, man. Yeah. And I, it, it's so, like, luckily for me, my parents refused to put me on any of it. They, they had their own problems. I'm not terribly, uh, uh, I'm not terribly close to my mom. I don't talk to my dad at all. He was a cunt. But they at least had the temerity not to fall for that stupid bullshit and to stand up to the school and be like, no, he's a, he's six years old. He's a boy. Right. He wants to be out in the field fucking tearing shit up. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not going to give him a pill. They wanted to hold me back in kindergarten and all I wanted to be out was with my dad on his backhoes. Yeah. You you know, and that's what I did all summer. I mean, I I worked, I, I had, you know, lawn mowing business and I was driving dump truck when I was, you know, 10 years old. Uh, but, but the, but, but, but I grew up in Montana. That kid in the inner city of Chicago, he doesn't get to drive a dump truck. Yeah. Like, and who, who's like, so in Montana, if you're, let's say your dad dies, right? Or something, your dad's not in the picture. There's going to be a lot more creative and manly, let's call it manly outlets. To, there, there's to, a lot better chance that that kid's yeah. going to get scooped up by a, a coach, another parent. There is nothing like that in inner cities. No. Nothing. No. Right? Like how how is that possible? There is you can get What's scooped drugs? up into into dealing Gang drugs. Activity. Yeah, it's like so. How how is that after all this time since the 1960s still the case? How is that still the only fucking option? Right. I don't understand that. Like it. That's why like it, people that vote for 
you know, or pe- people that are diehard left leaning. Uh, it's like, I understand that might be your political philosophy, but this is people's lives. You yeah. know what I mean? At some yeah. point, some level of practicality has to come into the equation. What exactly has the democratic party done for black people Yeah, in the inner cities? Yeah. Cause they, please give me a list of the things they've done aside I, from I, making I even you feel think, like a victim. I even think, uh, you know, there again, where federal money could go into helping subsidize was, would even be uh, helping with like parenting classes. I have always mm. said to young parents that are getting ready to have a kid, it's my opinion that 90% of your job of parenting is done when that kid is four years old. Four to six, actually. Yeah, if that's you, right. If you, that's, that's what my, my psychiatrist friend, or psychologist friends tell me, between yeah, four and six years if, old. If, and, I, and I really believe it's more like around two to three. Mm. And the reason for that is, is, you know, we don't give kids enough credit for, for what they're capable of. If you take a young baby home from the hospital and that kid starts crying in its crib and you grab it out of its crib and you take it back to your bed with you. And then the next night you put its crib, it starts crying and you go grab it and you come and put it back in your bed with you. Try on the third night, getting that kid out of its crib, feeding it, doing whatever, and put it back in its crib and see mm. how that goes. That baby will fall asleep between mom and dad mm. in a heartbeat. If you go put that kid in its crib, it's going to scream. Right. That kid is already manipulating you. Mm-hmm. And that, that baby is literally weeks old. It's no different than a dog. Old. Like yeah. you, you have to set the tone, man. Yeah, kennel so, training. Yeah. You're, you're, you're crib training a kid to stay in its yeah. crib and sleep, and that's where home is. It's yeah. no different than kennel training a dog. It's that, it's that Machiavelli principle. And if those you, kids if, will will absolutely manipulate parents well before they ever can speak yeah, a word. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and if you set the tone, you set expectations. We always gave our kids options. It was like, hey, you can clean your room right now, or you can clean your room right after dinner, but you're going to clean your room before mm-hmm. you go to bed. And guess what? You know, you, you get to the point where that time of night comes and it's like, hey, if you don't clean this up in the next five minutes, you're getting a spanking, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting your ass slapped or whatever the, mm-hmm. the consequence is. But kids have to understand and they have to realize that, that you are going to actually follow through with your, and that's the other thing, you know, make demands that you will actually follow through on. Yeah. If you tell them you're going to take their birthday away, you're a retard. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. You know, yeah. um, but, but I, there again, with, with these inner cities, that's how you provide hope and actually give these kids a chance of being like, hey, at 15, 16 years old, we're going to send you over to this program over here. You're going to go work with Dan and Bill and John, mm. and these guys are going to teach you skills and trades. And and when you walk out of here, you're going to understand that you, you could leave here and have job placements for them set up already. Mm-hmm. There are people dying for help. Of Roofing is a hard job. Tearing off roofs, tearing off shingles, right? Roofs, roofs. Um, you know, you could place these kids out of these positions and and tell them that hey, you're going to start off on the tear off crew, mm-hmm. but in six years you could be managing the install crew. Like you can be managing people by the time you're 20 years old, 25 years old. You know, I have a 21 year old employee right now that is managing people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's not it's not uncommon to be 20 to 22 and be a sergeant in the army and in charge of three other human lives. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. In the most serious situation you could be in combat. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, that's not uncommon. Frankly. Well, l- look back through history and see what people were doing at 15. Je- Lafayette was 24 years old, but a guy from a, a French general was 24 years old. He is one of the most effective commanders in the revolutionary war yeah. for America. Yeah. And the vast majority, except for John Adams, George Washington, and Ben Franklin, and a couple others, 
the vast majority of the founding fathers were in their twenties, yeah. mid to mid to late twenties, but in their twenties. So this is like, you know, our people, people certainly weren't smarter back then. Right. They didn't have access to the same information we did or the same type of, yeah. uh, they were just more mature. Right. And that only happens when you throw people out into the water and let them, let them swim. I remember kids teasing me when I was in high school, be like, you just going to be a ditch digger someday like your dad. Mm. And it's like, Actually, that'd be a fucking great job. Yeah, no shit. Like, dude. It pays pretty well. He does pretty well. Yeah. You know, they he built a real nice business for himself over the years. You know, a journeyman lineman makes between one hundred twenty and two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Good lord! And it's a three and a half year apprenticeship in which they pay you the entire time. You don't pay to get paid to go to college unless you're an NIL contract. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and and that's the thing I try to explain to kids is like if if you don't if you can't go to college you don't want to go to college whatever mm. you, know, you get a job making twenty five bucks an hour and every six months you get a pay raise for three and a half years and you become a journeyman and you have a skill that you can do anywhere in the nation if mm. you decide to move to New Jersey or yep. Florida it doesn't matter same thing with truck driving mm-hmm. I think as a matter of fact I think truck driving is the highest aggregate paying job for a non-college educated man in America. Yeah. And we're still somewhere between three and 6 million truck drivers short right now. If you can pass a CDL test and pass a piss test, Mm -hmm. you can have a job a thousand percent and make good money too. So we got to wrap up here, but there are all these problems that we are always bitching about. There are solutions, every single one of them. And almost every time the solution is to, Take personal responsibility of your of yourself first, certainly, but also you are your brother's keeper. Yeah, the end. That's the fucking moral of that story. You are you are your brother's keeper. It's your job to make sure everybody, especially as a man, it is your job to make sure everybody around you is taken care of. Right. You know what I mean. And you should you should when you see one of the people around you failing, you should feel shame mm-hmm. and you should overcome that shame so you can be proud of your situation again. Right. Yep, absolutely. And and what I what I hope people take away from what we've been doing at Montana Knife Company mm-hmm. is that that we are a group of completely unspecial people. We are not special. I I am definitely not a special person. I didn't have a special um, you know, I didn't have a bunch of money. It was completely bootstrapped. Um I had no idea how to manufacture on scale. I was making one knife at a time, one knife a month. And I went to making, right now we're making about a thousand knives a week, uh, all in three years. And it was all from just reading, asking questions, researching, and growing it from a really small point to a bigger point. And, and we hope that we're actually just start get, honestly, just getting started. You look at Evan Hafer, just a dumbass from Idaho, mm-hmm. what he built with black rifle coffee, mm-hmm. right? From a little logging town in Idaho, I'm from a little logging town mm-hmm. in Montana. Not that I'm trying to compare the two of us, oh, yeah. but the point is, is neither one of us were really that special, but it takes a lot of work and drive, uh, and, 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 and don't be afraid to get other people's help. You know, Evan had other people help him with black rifle. I, I, I didn't know anything about marketing. I went and asked for help and, and found a business partner, mm-hmm. you know, so don't be too proud to say, I don't know. And, and ultimately, you can build what we're building in your community. And if we had 10,000 little Montana knife companies all over the country, it'd be a hell of a lot better place. Yeah, because 10,000 Montana knife companies result in 10,000 leather companies and 10,000 butcher board companies and so on and so forth. Right. right? I mean, right. it's, it's again, I'll say it, when we all do better, we all do better. Um, yep. Uh, 
and everybody can find you at montananifecompany.com or Montana Knife Company, pretty much everyone's social media, right? Mostly right. on Instagram, I think you guys were. Yeah, mostly. We're on <clears throat> Facebook and Instagram. And then my personal one is just Josh Smith Knives. If You, you know, I, I put up more on there of just kind of my personal life, mm-hmm. maybe my my political opinions from time to time. <laughs> but uh, Well, I think they dovetail nicely with the knife community, so I'm yeah. not sure you're going to have any issues there. Yeah. Uh, go check out Montana Knife Company. Thanks for coming today, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for doing this podcast. What you're you're doing here is important. Uh, yeah, I hope so. We'll see, right? Just keep pushing yeah. well, at it. Well, if 10,000 more people did this kind of thing, it would, it would yeah, also 100%, yeah. make a difference. Yeah, rising tide lifts all boats, right? Um, <clears throat> and thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. <laughs>